Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, friends. My name is Paul Abdallah. I am one of the elders here at Stafford Baptist Church. It is a joy to gather with you this morning as we come now to the the time of our service where we will publicly proclaim and hear God's word proclaimed. This morning, uh, we are concluding the the three-week, 30,000-foot overview of the book of the prophet Isaiah. 66 chapters in just three weeks. We made it. We've, we've, we've gotten here. If you've missed one or, or both of those weeks, I'd encourage you to go back. You can find those uh, on our podcast and listen there. Next week, we will resume our, our normal pattern of much less chunks, smaller chunks in the book of Genesis, considering uh, the story of Isaac. Well, at the beginning of our study of Isaiah, we, we summarized all of Isaiah through the, the phrase, the Holy One Acts. So if you take nothing else from, from these three weeks, know that the, the Holy One is intimately involved in His world and acts accordingly. We've summarized His actions in two ways so far through the, the first 55 chapters. In Isaiah 1-39, through we saw that God purifies We were called to trust the Holy One who purifies His rebellious people through judgment. Then last week, in Isaiah 40 through 55, we considered the action of God comforting. God comforts. And we were called to come to the only God who brings comfort by His servant. So God purifies. God comforts. And as we concluded last week with the assurance of Isaiah 55 that God will abundantly pardon His people who come to His servant, it's on the heels of that promise that we come to Isaiah 56 through 66 this morning. As we've done each and every week so far in this study, we will set our focus on one chapter within this chunk of ten chapters. Our focus will be on Isaiah 65, the the second to last chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 65. So if you have a Bible, please open there with me to Isaiah 65. If you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to use one of those pew Bibles there in the, in the pew in front of you. Please feel free to, to, to use that and find Isaiah 65 on page 623. 623. Before we read from Isaiah 65, we'll first give ourselves kind of a brief overview of, of this chunk of Isaiah 56 through 66. Isaiah 56 begins this new section with a a call to righteousness. God's salvation is coming soon. Therefore, be righteous. God is gathering a people to Himself. Therefore, be righteous. Then, as we move into Isaiah 57 through 59, we see God confront those who, who are inside His people who are not living faithfully. And He assures them that judgment is coming. But to those who are faithful, He assures them with the promise of His salvation. And so that section in chapter 59 concludes with a a short prayer for forgiveness and restoration and the assurance that the Lord, the ultimate warrior king, will deliver His people. In Isaiah 60 to 62 then, we see the result of the Lord's deliverance of His people. And that will be His glory dwelling in His holy city. This glory will come through His messenger who proclaims liberty and the blessing of the Lord, and with His glory coming to dwell in His holy city, His 
the renown of God and his people will be known throughout the world. As we move into Isaiah 63, God assures us that this will come by his own hand. His, as the warrior king, he will bring it about. And so again, the people of God pray. And at the end of Isaiah 63 into chapter 64, the people of God pray for mercy. That God would not remain angry in judgment, but that he would deliver them. And Isaiah 65 and 66, I think, are the answer to that prayer. God promises that he will come and bring a final salvation, the creation of his holy people, his holy place, and the final judgment of all who have rebelled against him. So that's where we're going. Big picture from Isaiah 56 through 66. But as I said, our focus will reside this morning in chapter 65. God's response to the prayer for mercy. So let's read that now, and then I'll lead us after our reading in a prayer for the hearing and proclaiming of God's word, starting in Isaiah 65, verse 1. God speaks, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. 
I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall be built houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or build children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord with their, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the, we have the assurance that, Lord, though Isaiah recorded these words, these were not produced by his will, but he spoke from you as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Father, this word we have before us this morning is your inspired holy word coming from your very mouth. Father, may we hear it as such. May your spirit that has inspired this word now give illumination of this word. Help us to see and understand who you are and what you promise and how we ought to live. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine with me this morning a man and a woman. They've been together dating for two years. And six months ago, this man proposed to this woman, and she responded with a joyful yes. The next six months they spent together, almost every waking moment, planning a beautiful wedding. They pick a wonderful summer day. They pick a beautiful venue. They get invitations and invite all their friends and their family. They decide on delicious food and a cake. They hire a DJ who will play all their favorite songs. So much of their time in these six months spent preparing for that one day. Their hopes, their expectations are incredibly high for what that day will be like. And every day they plan those hopes and expectations get just a little bit bigger. When that day arrives, everyone is excited, right? The the whole family expecting a day full of joy and harmony that awaits them. But they arrive at the venue only to find that there's not enough seats to sit everyone who is coming. And as they deal with that problem, the, the caterer calls. The fridge broke, and now a good part of their food is ruined. And as they hang up the phone with the caterer, the florist arrives, but they've forgotten the bride's bouquet. As the day goes on, issue after issue arrives, and what was supposed to be this this wonderful, expectant day has been turned into one of the most disappointing days. Hopes crushed, expectations of what this day was to be not realized. Have you ever been let down like that? Probably not, right? That's an extreme example. But I bet you can, expect, you can remember a time where you were let down. Maybe it was an election result that disappointed you. 
Maybe it's a job or a relationship that you had high hopes for that, that didn't turn out as you expected. Or maybe something far less serious, like a movie you expected to be the next great thing only for it to be a dud. We've all had our expectations not realized. And I think that's where we meet the people of God this morning in Isaiah. You see, Isaiah's final section of prophecies are are geared towards those exiles who have returned to a disappointing Jerusalem. This is what we see in chapter 64, verses 10 through 12. The people have returned, but the temple has been burned by fire. The pleasant places have become ruins. The holy city has become a wilderness and a desolation. God's salvation had come in part. They had been rescued from Babylon, but not in whole. And how were they to handle this in-between? We two friends live in an in-between. God's salvation has come in part. In Jesus' coming, He announces the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has declared the work of salvation finished on the cross. He has risen again. But as each of us knows, this life does not meet our expectations day after day. Well, what are we to do? I think we find the answer in Isaiah 56 verse 1. The very first verse of our section this morning answers that question. Hear what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. What are we to do? We are to press on in righteousness as we await the final salvation of God. As our day-to-day does not meet the expectations we might have, we are to press on in righteousness. For soon, God's salvation will come. That's our big idea this morning. Our one-sentence summary of, of this ten chapters of Isaiah. Rejoice in doing righteousness as God prepares you for His final salvation. I'll say that again. Rejoice in doing righteousness as God prepares you for His final salvation. The final act of God in Isaiah is His preparation. God prepares. He prepares His people for the fullness of His salvation. But right now we meet the people of God in, mercy, in need of mercy. That's why we see in Isaiah 64, they, they pray for mercy and God responds to their prayer with the promise of His preparing work. God is actively preparing Himself a people and a glorious place for that people to dwell for all eternity. And so as His people, we are called to joyfully await that coming day. Rejoice in doing righteousness as God prepares you for His final salvation. We'll consider that big idea in in two parts. First, God prepares a people. God prepares a people. In the first 16 verses of Isaiah 65, God prepares a people. Secondly, God prepares a place. God prepares a place in the final eight verses of Isaiah 65. God prepares a people and God prepares a place. Let's start first by considering God preparing a people in the first 16 verses of Isaiah 65. As I've mentioned several times now, right? The, the, the chapter that comes right before our chapter is a prayer for mercy. Let's, let's just read briefly the, the final verse. This, how this prayer concludes in verse 12 of Isaiah 64. 
The people of God ask, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? These things being what we said, the, the, des- the, the destruction of the temple, right? the pleasant places becoming ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? What are they doing? They are calling upon God and His mercy. They're, they're calling upon Him to act on behalf of His glory. It is His holy cities that have been destroyed. And so the Lord will respond, right? We, we serve a God who does not keep silent. But God speaks, and He speaks by first declaring His readiness to deliver this people, but they wanted nothing to do with Him. Look at verse 1. I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be found. I said, here I am, here I am. But each of those followed by those who did not ask for me, those who did not seek me, to a nation that was not called out by my name. I I spread my hands in verse 2 all the day to a rebellious people. Friends, this is the story of of human history. God taking the initiative to to seek after His people, to, to make them His people, to welcome in rebellious people, but they wanting nothing to do with God. Friends, you do not come to God on your own accord. God has made Himself uh, he's, he's revealed Himself to you. He's sought after you. In fact, we were concerned with our own devices, as verse 2 says. This rebellious people walks in a way that is not good, following their own devices. See, rather than practicing true righteousness, in faith, we decide we know best and practice false righteousness. As been the case throughout much of Isaiah, God condemns this people's religious practices. Look at verses 3 and 4. They are a people who provoke him to his face continually. Well, well, how do they provoke him? They must be rejecting him all the way outright. No, they're making sacrifices, making offerings. They're sitting in tombs, spending the night in secret places. Right? The, the idea is that they, their, their religious acts have not justified them before their God. Instead, they've actually begun mixing in Canaanite elements into their religious practices. It seems as if they've may picked up some things from Babylon in their, in their time there that they've brought back with them. And not only that, but in a statement of absurd pride, there are people declaring to others in Jerusalem, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. seems some people here in Israel have elevated themselves over others with this kind of false sense of holiness and, and what it means to be clean. This reminds me, it's, it's much like the, the Pharisee in Luke 18 verse 11. You know the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells and two people come into the temple, one's this Pharisee and, and the other is this tax collector. We read about this Pharisee in, in verse 11 of Luke 18. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What marks the Pharisee there? Right? This kind of false sense of, of holiness. Not just of his own holiness, but his holiness in comparison to that tax collector over there. I'm too holy for him. You can almost hear him saying. And who is it that goes home justified that day, Jesus says? Not. The Pharisee, who says, I'm too holy for you. 
No, it's the tax collector who, who relies upon the mercy of the Lord. Well, it's that same kind of foolish pride that, that's so clear in, in the, the Pharisee that resides in the people here in Isaiah 65. And look at how the Lord feels about this kind of prideful self-exaltation. Look in, in verse 5. He writes, or he says, These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. If you've ever been around a campfire, right? The fire begins to, to smoke begins to come up and it, it might get into your nose. Is that a good feeling? No, it's a terrible feeling, right? It begins to burn. It frustrates. It annoys you. Well, that, that I think is, is this vivid illustration of, of this kind of how God feels about this kind of pride. It's like smoke in his nostrils, right? That's how these self-exalted people are to God. And so, as they've begged God not to keep silent, he says, I will not keep silent. But they probably won't like what he has to say. Look at what he says there in verse 6. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. He will judge. He will repay into the lap of every prideful, self-exalted sinner exactly what they deserve. Well, brothers and sisters, this ought to be a sober warning for you And for me, let us not be tempted to look at those Israelites, at that Pharisee, and think that's not us. That kind of self-exalting, fool-hearted pride lies within each and every one of us. We're each tempted to think we are more holy than those around us. We think to ourselves, if if, if that person only served like I served... Or we think all our problems in this church would be fixed if everyone prayed like I prayed. We think that person could really grow. They'd really mature if they just let me disciple them for a year. We build ourselves up in our minds. Our hearts twist the good, righteous deeds that God calls us to. And we twist them to accomplish our own end. And we often do this in the name of practicing true righteousness. That's the occurring theme, recurring theme in Isaiah 56 through 66. One section we see that clearly is in Isaiah 58, where the people are complaining to God about Him taking no knowledge of their humbling of themselves. God, we've done it. We've humbled ourselves. And He declares this to them, starting in the second half of verse 3 of Isaiah 58. Behold, the Lord says, In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. As sinners, we're easily fooled into thinking what we are doing is true righteousness. But at its heart... It's not true righteousness, a, a rather a false humility that, that's really a prideful self-exaltation of ourselves. Friends, examine your own hearts. How are you living in, in your pursuit of righteousness? Is it to justify yourself or is it a humble reliance upon your God? Those who self-exalt themselves God speaks to them a word of judgment. He will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. But thankfully, God's words don't stop there. He continues. He turns to speak a word of hope. 
Look at verses 8 and 9. Thus says the Lord. So we've seen one says the Lord, and, and that was judgment. Now we're seeing another. Thus says the Lord. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. See, the Lord speaks again. This time, He declares that He will not destroy all of His people. No, He will preserve a remnant of His people. He will bring forth a fruitful offspring. Back in the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 5, we didn't get to spend much time there in our our, uh, sermon a couple weeks ago. God there in Isaiah 5 compares His people to a vineyard of grapes. But He's actually judging them. He's he's saying they have not yielded the grapes that they they ought to have yielded. Well, I think the Lord's picking up a similar illustration here. He calls them a cluster. And just as one wouldn't destroy a, a whole cluster of grapes when there's some within it that can make new wine, so too God won't destroy all His people. There are some from whom He will bless. There will some from whom He will choose and they will possess His holy mountain. He will bring forth offspring from Jacob. Brothers and sisters, this is an act of God. He is the one doing this work. He is the one preparing this people for himself. We see in verses 13 through 16 that he will bless his people and curse those who are not. That the Lord will send some to death, but he will choose some that he blesses himself. This is by God's own hand. Again, this is not a, a unique theme to Isaiah 65. We've seen this throughout, right? All of Isaiah. That's why we've entitled the, this, ser- this series, The Holy One Acts. Right? It is God's action again and again. But we see that very clearly in Isaiah 56, verse 8, where we read this. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Who is it? Who's doing the gathering? It is God. This is what God does. He prepares a people for himself by taking initiative to pursue sinners who want nothing to do with him and to give them new life by his own hand. In Isaiah 59 verse 16 we read, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness up Hold him. There was no human that would that would intercede on behalf of, of the people. There, there was none who was righteous, and so God sent his own arm to bring salvation, to prepare a people for himself. The emphasis is on the work of God, not on the work of people. It is God's work to save sinners. Friends, you and I cannot save ourselves. We must look to the beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ, the the Good Shepherd, who lays down His life and takes it up again for our deliverance. And this is good news for us. Because if God is the one who's begun this good work in us, we can have assurance that He's the one who will bring it to completion. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
This is good hope for us who are sinners. Because the more we come to God's word, the, the more we see the hidden evils of our heart, right? The more, the more it's revealed to us that what's natural to us is self-exaltation. But the more we come to God through His Son, the greater confidence we can have that He is preparing us. That, that our preparation is not dependent on us, but on Him. He will bring it to completion. What well, does this glorious grace of God to prepare sinners into His righteous people mean that, that we just do nothing and hope for the best? The answer to that must be a resounding and sure no. Right? The whole point God is making in Isaiah is what He begun with. Keep justice and do righteousness. The whole point is that as we come to the assurance that God is preparing a people for Himself, we ought to be motivated to pursue true righteousness. It is His people who have sought Him that He answers. And they that haven't sought Him, they that aren't pursuing true righteousness, will, will be judged. See, God's vision for His people, friends, is that his, the righteousness of His people will sprout up before all the nations, as we saw in our call to worship this morning. God's vision for you and I is that we would hold fast to His covenant through pursuing righteousness. You know, in fact, the, the two times in Isaiah 56 through 66 that we see God use the word prepare, we actually see it as a command to the people. God's people are to prepare the way of others. Look at one of those examples with me, Isaiah 57. We, we read the second half of, of this section, 14 into 15. We read verse 15 for our assurance of forgiveness, but we'll read the whole thing, 14 and 15 of Isaiah 57. And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. What are the people to be doing? They're to humble themselves. Right? They are, they are not to self-exalt themselves. They are to humble themselves. And as they humble themselves, they are to prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from God's people. See, as we humble ourselves before God, and instead of self-exalting ourselves, He comes to dwell in us, to revive our hearts, and enables us to pursue this true righteousness. But we are not called to pursue this true righteousness on our own. We are to prepare the way of others. I wonder if you've ever noticed this about the Bible. So much of God's commands relate to how we help one another become prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. I think we see this preparing work laid out for us in Ephesians 4 through 6. Where God has united us to His Son. Right? He's pre- preparing this people. He's begun this good work. But then the whole church is called to participate in it. In Ephesians 4, the whole church is called to speak the truth in love so that we might mature, that we might grow up into Christ our head. So church, each of us has the responsibility to prepare the way of others. Do you have the kind of relationships where you can speak the truth in love and, and, and prepare and remove obstructions that, that might be blocking the way of others in this church? Paul will go on in Ephesians 5 and tell husbands that they're given the responsibility to wash their wives with the water of the word. Why? 
so that they might be holy and without blemish, that they might be prepared. Husbands, have we done that this week? Have we washed our wives in the water of God's word? Paul goes on in Ephesians 6. He speaks to parents. He says parents are called to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to prepare their children for this coming salvation of God. Parents, how are we doing in this? Are we leading our families, preparing them for the full and final salvation that is coming? Again and again, God calls His people to be ready to make a way, to prepare, to remove the obstructions because He is preparing us. Isaiah 65 presents a picture of a righteous people, blessed in many ways, purified from sin, right? That's that's the idea of God judging sin. He purifies himself for for himself a, a holy people. And this is the work that God is at now. It starts with Christ, gathering from every tribe and tongue, and continues through the works of, of others, preparing one another. God is preparing a people for himself. But we see God's not just preparing a people, he's preparing a place. In fact, in, in kind of the opposite of what happens at creation, where God started by first creating the garden, the, the place, and then creating the people, God is now at work by creating a people and then creating a place. He is preparing a place for his prepared people. So that leads us to our second point. God prepares a place. Well, as God prepares his people, we read at the end of verse 16, what is, what is one of the blessings that come to his prepared people? The former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from his eyes. How can that be? Well, it's because God is creating something new. Look at verse 17. For behold, right there's the forts grounding what, what God has just promised. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. God is creating this new heavens and this new earth. And in this new place, the former things will will not be remembered. And it will be a place where we are glad and rejoice forever. Look at verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. God is creating this new heavens and this new earth where, where we will be glad forever. A joyous promise for his people. But not only joy, will the people have joy in God. No, God is creating a place where his people, where he will rejoice in his people. Look at verse 19, the first half. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Think about that for just a moment. God promising a place where not only will we rejoice, but he will rejoice in his people. We see this as a a recurring theme throughout all of Scripture. We see it again in Isaiah 62, verses 4 through 5, where the Lord declares His delight in His bride. We read in, in Isaiah 62, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Friends, this is the truth about God that we don't often think about. But He rejoices over His people. 
friends, I hope you're seeing that, that we don't serve a God who kind of sits up in heaven angry and just distressed. No, we worship a God who comes to make ready a people for himself and who will rejoice in that people as he creates and prepares this glorious place. This will be the defining mark of this new heavens and new earth. God rejoicing in his people as we rejoice in him. If that wasn't glorious enough, a place where God is rejoicing in his people, Isaiah continues and the Lord continues. His descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth continue in the second half of verse 19. No more shall be heard in it, in Jerusalem, this, this new city, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Right? This, is, this is the promise, no more tears, no more trouble for the people of God. Verse 20 goes on to say that there will no longer be any death or any sin. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. I think in the context that God is speaking here of, of the former things not being remembered, but, but this place being a place where we're going to rejoice forever, shows us that, that here in verse 20, God is speaking of this eternal state. And so verse 20 is, is figurative, right? He's not saying that even in eternity there will be death. But he's using this kind of language, human language, to help us understand that, that death will no longer affect people as it does here, right? That the, the sinner will, will not be able to escape. And so I think we're, we're, we're directed to this day where there will be no death, no sin, the, the final eternal state. I will admit there, there are others who, who disagree with me about verse 20. I think there's room for us to disagree but as we move in, right, no matter how we understand verse 20, as we finish this passage and come to the conclusion in, in, in verse 25, right, we're given this picture. The wolf and the lamb grazing together. The lion eating straw like the ox. And dust being the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The phrase, dust shall be the serpent's food, recalls God's promise in, in, in Genesis 3.15. He has subdued the serpent in judgment at this point, here at the end of, of verse 25, just as he has promised. And I think we see no matter how we get there, the end, we, we can affirm that, that God is creating an eternity where there will be no pain or destruction throughout his holy mountain, where, where death and sin will be defeated. The serpent shall eat dust. We get a picture of a glorious place. For God's redeemed people. God preparing this glorious place. We see this language of new heavens and new earth picked up again in, in Revelation 21. We read that earlier. But let me just read two verses to call to mind what we read. Starting in verse 1 of Revelation 21. We read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. John continues, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I hope you see the similarities there between Revelation 21 and Isaiah 65. I think what we are to understand is that Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of what God promises here in Isaiah 65, the place being prepared and God welcoming His beloved people into this glorious, prepared place. God will bring it about. 
John sees what Isaiah prophesies. And this prepared place, brothers and sisters, is our hope as we deal with unmet expectations here and now. This is what we see in in John 14. In John 14, Jesus is in the middle of his final words to his disciples. Right before his, his, his arrest and crucifixion. In, in John 13, Jesus has just proclaimed that, that someone sitting with them is going to betray him. That Peter is going to deny him. Talk about unmet expectations. Disciples expecting Jesus to bring about this full kingdom. And now they're being told one of them is going to betray him and the other one's going to deny him. You can think of the, the trouble that might be upon their hearts. That's where we pick up in John 14 verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. Jesus tells his disciples to not let their heart be troubled. Don't let their unmet expectations frustrate them, discourage them. Instead, they are to believe in Him. Why? Because He's going to prepare a place for them. Not only does He go to prepare that place, but He says, I will come back and I will take you to there when it is ready. If you know the story, you might know that Thomas asked Jesus, or how can we know the way to this place? And Jesus replies with with the the very common verse of John 14, verse 6. But just hear it. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, Highway 95 won't take you to this prepared place. There is no highway on which we can drive. The only way to get to the place being prepared is through Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Each and every one of us deserves a different place being prepared. The place described in Isaiah 66, verse 24. Where they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. The place of unquenching fire. But friends, Jesus lived a life that we could not. He went to the cross that we deserved, where He took upon Himself our judgment so that when we trust in Him because He's been raised from the dead and now has gone to prepare a place, we are delivered from death and sin and promised a prepared place. All of this brought about not by our goodness, but by God's own hand, through His work, through His goodness, assuring it to us, not in ourselves, but in God. Let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in Him. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, this call is to you. Apart from Christ, you have every reason to have a troubled heart. Apart from Christ, every expectation you will have will be unmet in that final day. God's word is from beginning is clear from beginning to end. There is no escape for those who reject God. But if you look to Jesus, you rest in him, you turn from your sin, there is hope. 
every expectation that we have of that prepared place will be overmet. It is far more glorious than you or I can imagine right here and right now. This is the hope that awaits those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. If that's you today, you've never trusted in Jesus, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Those whom you came with would love to talk with you. Talk to you about this hope that awaits the people of God. Friends, what hope it is. And because we have that hope, we can rejoice, brothers and sisters, in every circumstance. Because we are bound for this land. I love the song we sung on Jordan Stormy Banks. Because we we sing it over and over again. Just trying to get it into our stubborn heads. I am bound. I am bound. I am bound for this promised land. Brothers and sisters, one of the easiest things for us to do is to forget that we are bound for that land. But God calls us to joy, to take hope, because we are bound for that land and He is preparing for us right now. But we're still awaiting that hope, right? The song begins by saying we stand on the stormy banks of the Jordan. Right? We can't see the promised land. It's, it's muddied by the storm that's going on around us in this life. And so we just cast a wishful eye. But we cast that wishful eye with the full assurance that we are bound for the land that God has promised to us here in Isaiah 65. I create a new heavens and a new earth. But we are still waiting those glorious promises here and now. And so how are we to wait the fulfillment of those promises? I think Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 13-14, must have been thinking about Isaiah 56-66 as he's writing. Hear what he writes in starting in verse 13 of chapter 3. But according to his promise, whose promise? God's promise, Jesus' promise. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What does that sound like? Sounds like Isaiah 65. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. How are we to await these wondrous, glorious promises were given in Isaiah 65? By being diligent to be found without spot or blemish. In other words, friends, to press on in rejoicing in righteousness as you wait the final salvation God is preparing. Friends, have you done that this week? Have you rejoiced in righteousness? Have you rejoiced in your own righteousness, seeking to pursue true righteousness from a humble heart? Have you rejoiced in the righteousness of others, encouraging them to pursue this righteousness as we await? So often when we take our eyes off of the eternal hope, the the promised land for which we are almost home to, we begin to waver in our righteousness. We begin to, 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 to seek our own interest and not pursue the righteousness God calls us to. But we are called to set our eyes for behold, right? Look, see, I create a new heavens and a new earth, the Lord says. There are many ways for us to pursue righteousness here and now. To list them all would mean we'd be here for for hundreds of days. But I want to just think of one way we can can this week live in pursuit of righteousness. And that is to use what we have now for eternity. To live in light of the fact that this world will pass away and a new world will come. 
As I'm sure many of you have this week, I've spent much of my week remembering our brother Franklin Taylor, who died late Saturday night. And the Bible encourages us to do this, that when the the righteous perish, we should take it to heart. That's what we see in Isaiah 57 verse 1. So how do we take his death to heart? Well, let's ask ourselves, what did Franklin take with him when he died? He took nothing. He left his house, his wife, his money, his military honors all still remain here. Nothing went with him. But friends, Franklin knew that, and he lived his life as one who was heading to that prepared place. And so we too, brothers and sisters, need to use what we have now to make investments into the future. How can you use your resources here and now to invest in that eternity? Let me suggest a few ways. One, use your time. Use your time to read God's Word, to take notes, to memorize, to disciple and teach others. You know, one thing uh, Kelton and I did as we went over to, to see Gertrude is Gertrude has kept a, a book from Franklin. He, he had this book of his notes from every morning. He would get up and he would read the Bible and he would just take notes on it. And the binder was like that thick and it was like six or seven books of the Bible. He did that again and again. Brothers, use your time. Brothers and sisters, use your time to, to, to memorize and read and enjoy God's word. Use your money to give to the church, to missions, to help those in need. Use your home, welcoming those in hospitality who you may not know well. And those in many other ways, we are to live as those who know God is preparing a place. That this is not our home, but we are bound for a promised land. Friends, this life is not all that we have. We are almost home to a land that we are told of in Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. Where we read, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make, the Lord says, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. A prepared place from where all of God's prepared people will worship him forever. And the hope that we have is that God promises to bring that about, to hold us fast until that arrives. That's our hope, brothers and sisters. As we set our hope on that this morning, let us rejoice in doing righteousness as the God who purifies you, who comforts you, now prepares you for his final salvation. Let's pray. O gracious and eternal Father, may our hearts be set on you this week. Give us the assurance of these glorious promises you have made to prepare a people for yourself and a place where you will dwell with them for all eternity. Where there will be no need for sun or moon because your glory will light the way. Keep us from putting our hopes this week on earthly things. Draw our minds to this promised land. And as you do that, give us joy. Give us help from others in this body as we seek to humble ourselves and pursue righteousness. Father, hold us fast until you come in Jesus to welcome us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.